Please, congregation, turn with me in your Bibles this afternoon once again to 1 Kings chapter 17. We'll pick up in the story that we began this morning. We'll begin reading again at verse 1 of chapter 17, but our focus this afternoon will be on what we find in verses 8 through 16. First Kings chapter 17 at verse 1, this is God's holy word. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, Please bring me a a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called her and said, And please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar, and see, I am gathering a couple of sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word may bless that to us as we meditate upon it this afternoon. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we began to see this morning what happens when God goes to war. We began to see what happens when God goes to war with the, with the false gods of the world. When God goes to war with these false gods and false ideologies of the world, he curses foolish builders who try his word, who put his word to the test. That's what we saw in the life of Hyle the builder who, who openly defied the curse of God against whoever would be so bold as to rebuild and refortify the walls of Jericho. But Hyle was but a a representation of what had become all too common throughout the land of Israel. 
namely that, that way of life that said, we don't need God anymore. We're doing just fine without and we can live life in our own strength. Heil's building project, you see, was simply par for the course, this, this gross disdain for the grace of God and for the, and for the message of God's grace that had been proclaimed for centuries through those toppled walls of Jericho. And so we saw also in verse 1 that when God goes to war with the gods of the world, he also can contend with those wicked kings who, who trample his word. He does not turn a blind eye toward them, but rather, as we saw in verse 1, he confronts them with the word as he did when Elijah stood before the king and said that there will be neither dew nor rain except by my word. And so as Israel's fields have begun already now to crack and wither, so too has Baal's supposed divinity begun to crack and wither as Israel begins to suffer the consequences for willfully following their wicked king who had no regard for God and no regard for the word of God. And God intends, we know, to, to use this famine to make Israel see the, the error in her ways. And yet we also saw that when God goes to war with these false gods and false ideologies of the world, he also takes care of his righteous servants. He not only contends with the wicked, but he cares for the righteous. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and told him to, to depart and to turn eastward, to go by the brook Cherith, where God would give him water to drink from the brook and where God would send ravens to bring him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. Elijah, you see, had a great task before him. He was to be God's messenger, God's word bearer to the people of Israel. Through his ministry, as he proclaimed the word of God and said, thus says the Lord, God's people were to, were to lend their ears. They were to repent of their sins and, and return to the, to the Lord with all their heart. And so it must have come as somewhat a shock and surprise to the prophet Elijah when when after the brook of Cherith finally dried up, the word of the Lord comes to him once again. And what does he say? Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs in Sidon, and dwell there. Zarephath? In the land of Sidon, in the land of our enemies, Elijah must have thought, God wants me to go to, to Zarephath? Why Zarephath? Well, this congregation is the question the Spirit of Christ would have us to consider together this afternoon. Why Zarephath? Why has God commissioned Elijah to, to leave the land of Israel and to dwell in the land of the Sidonians? In the context of this war between the God of heaven and the false gods of the world, God's word goes beyond the borders of Israel. This story we need to see is not so much a, a story about Elijah, but rather this is a story about the word of the Lord. This is a story about what, what the word of the Lord is doing and where the word of the Lord is going. And as the word of the Lord now goes beyond the borders of Israel, it does two things. It serves to chastise and rebuke Israel on the one hand, while simultaneously showing God's power to save outsiders on the other. 
It rebukes Israel. It increases her judgment, but also reveals God's power to go into the very heart of heathendom where Baal is most worshipped and praised and to save some unto himself. And so as we seek to work our way through our passage this afternoon, I'd like for us to consider three things together. Noticing, first of all, the pronounced departure of God's word. And then secondly, the prophetic demand of God's word. And then finally, the promised deliverance of God's word. Well, the departure of God's word we need to see in the first place this afternoon not only serves to, to bring a Gentile home into the household of faith, but it also serves to signify the reality that the northern kingdom of Israel has come under God's covenant curse. For as we heard this morning, God had warned the people of Israel through his servant Moses that if they went after other gods, then, then the Lord would indeed shut up the heavens and there would be no rain and that the, the ground would yield no fruit. And so here we see that Israel's religious syncretism is so detestable to God that God is now giving Israel over to her own devices. Israel, you see, thought that she could perhaps have it both ways. She thought she could call upon the name of the Lord for some things and then go to Baal for other things. And so Israel has forgotten. She has forgotten that God is either everything to you or he is nothing to you. There is no middle ground. God left no space for wiggle room when, when he said, you shall have no other gods before me. But Israel has turned her back on the word of the Lord, and so the word of the Lord has turned its back on Israel, as God now sends his prophet to Zarephath and Sidon. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3, we read that were all these covenant curses to fall upon Israel, if only they would return to the Lord their God and, and give ear to his voice with all their heart, then God would, would restore their fortunes and again show mercy. But Israel has not repented. Apparently enough time has gone by since chapter 17, verse 1, that the brook of Cherith has already dried up. Ahab and Israel have not had a change of heart. And so God's judgment upon their unbelief is intensified as he sends his word bearer beyond the borders of Israel. Every day and every night it was the same story in Israel. The heavens were declaring the anger of God. The firmament was declaring the, the heat of his wrath. As the fields began to wither, and as the land of Israel, which used to be a land flowing with milk and honey, began to dry up altogether. And this, of course, he recognizes where the rejection of God's word always gets you. This is where unbelief always leads parched land and a parched life. This is what you get when you forsake the Lord, the fountain of living waters. And in this way, Elijah's departure is indeed going to speak volumes to this rebellious people as the Lord 
gives them over to the desires of their hearts and, and as he takes his word elsewhere. And this is what ultimately came of the unbelieving Jews as the Apostle Paul describes at length in Romans chapter 11. Because of the hardness of their hearts, what did God do? God gave them over to a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and, and ears that would not hear as it had been written. And this congregation is what God continues to do to this very day. That when a church or denomination for, forsakes the word of the Lord and begins to embrace more and more the, the values and ideologies of the world, God begins to give them over to their own devices. So that they may have beautiful buildings like this one. They may have great assets, as many churches in Canada do. But no light because Christ has removed the lampstand from their midst. And so after the brook had dried up, because there was no rain in the land, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Arise, and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you, to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. God's servant obeys God's voice. Verse 10, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. The word of the Lord has departed from Israel. But now the word of the Lord with all its grace and mercy has, has fixed its gaze, has fixed its mission on this weak and poor and helpless widow in Zarephath whom we discover at the end of verse 12 is down to her last meal. Apparently, God's war against the gods of the world, and particularly against Baal, the god of rain, is a war that's being waged not only in Israel, but also on Baal's home turf in the land of the Sidonians. Times are tough in Sidon. When God shut up the heavens over Israel, the surrounding nations also began to, to feel the pinch of God's judgment against his covenant people. That includes this poor widow in Zarephath. She has no husband to protect her or to provide for her. Her son is without a father to care for him. She's picking up sticks so that she might prepare one last meal in order that he and, and she may eat it and die. Baal, the false god of the Sidonians, has not seen her. But the God of Israel has. And thus far, Baal, the false god of the Sidonians, has, has not been able to help her. But as we'll see, the God of Israel is able. And in his sovereign grace, the Lord has looked upon this poor widow, just as he looked upon Noah before the days of the flood, just as he looked upon Rahab before the destruction of Jericho, such that she has found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God has shown no partiality. He has not held her weakness or her poverty against her. But God has seen her. And God has seen her plight in her lowly estate. And although she is an outsider, a a stranger to the covenant of promise, as Paul would say in Ephesians 2. And although she is not at all aware of it, 
the God of heaven has elected to save this widow. And so God has sent his prophet to this widow in order that she might come to know the, the power of his grace and the provision of his faithfulness. Comment on this poor widow's estate, one pastor notes how the story of the widow and her son demonstrates the wonderful truth of Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, where God said through his servant Moses, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. You see, a congregation of God shows no partiality. Then we don't need to be somebody to get his attention. And if he accepts no bribes, then we don't need to be rich to receive his mercy. For God favors neither the rich nor the famous, says Phil Reichen, but on the contrary, as Deuteronomy 10 18 says, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And loves the soldier, giving him food and clothing. And so here, congregation, 1 Kings 17, we see that the New Testament is, is breaking through into the old. And here we are reminded that, that bringing the Gentiles in was in the heart of God all along. It was always God's design to bring those who were far and to bring them near. It was always His purpose. You'll remember from Genesis 12 so that, that all the nations of the world be blessed through Abraham. And so God has sent his prophet to this widow in Zarephath in order that she and her son might come to know this blessing for themselves. God's word has gone beyond the borders of Israel. Notice in the second place this afternoon that when the word of the Lord comes to us and not only delivers everything to us as we'll see in the last place but also demands everything from us. When Elijah arrived in Zarephath, this unnamed widow was about to die. I have nothing baked, she says, only a handful of flour and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself that I and my son may eat it and die. But Elijah has come just in time which is to say God's grace has come just in time. When the widow and her son were about to die, God sent his messenger. This is the way congregation in which God's grace always comes to us. Is it not at just the right time? That as we heard in our assurance of pardon this morning, it was indeed at just the right time. And we were still weak and we are still dead in our sins. That's when God sent his messenger. That's when God sent his Christ to die, not for the strong, not for the righteous, but for the weak and for the unrighteous. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, says Paul, but God has demonstrated his love for us in what way? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This congregation is the good news of the gospel that has come to each and every one of us. This is the good news 
of the gospel that God's messenger proclaims to you this afternoon, that while we were still weak, Christ died for us, that while we were still sinners, God loved us and reconciled us unto himself. At just the right time, God sent his messenger. At just the right time, he proclaimed the message. We must also recognize this afternoon that when the message of God's deliverance comes to us, it is a message that demands everything from us. Yes, Elijah has burst onto the scene of this poor widow's life. He has burst onto the scene as a, as a picture of Christ himself. And he has come at just the right time when she and her son are about to die. But when he comes, he asks for everything. That's what we see in verses 10 to 13. Yes, God has, has seen this poor and needy widow. He has seen her plight in her lowly estate. He has seen that this widow has finally come down to her last meal. But that's the very thing that is now asked of her. Because faith is a call to trust, isn't it? Faith, as the author of Hebrews says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not only a, a knowledge and conviction that everything God has revealed in his word is true, Lord's Day 7, but it is also what? It is a, a wholehearted trust. It is a deep-rooted assurance. Faith looks beyond itself and leans on another. And this is what the word of the Lord is calling this widow to do here. He is calling her to, to lean on another. The word of the Lord is calling her to give all that she has and the trust that the God who has seen her will also provide for her. Elijah is asking for everything. And as he does so, he is placing the demand of the covenant upon her life. The domain of the covenant upon her life, wherein God says, you must put me first. You must listen to my word. You must commit your life into my hands and trust that I will provide your daily bread. God speaks to her through his prophet as he spoke to Israel. He spoke to us, saying, in essence, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything is, is God's. Everything comes from God. And this, we know, is why Israel is called year after year to, to give the first fruits to God, to remind them over and over and over again that everything they had and everything that had been entrusted to their care had come from their Father in heaven. That God was their provider, that God was their sustainer, not themselves. Understandably, the widow was afraid to grant Elijah's request. And perhaps we're sympathetic to the widow's initial hesitancy. Because don't we often think the exact same way that God is, is asking too much of us? God comes to us, and what does he say? He says, you shall love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. 
Lord, sometimes I'm to say, Lord, you're, you're asking too much of me. Can't I just give you half my heart and keep half for myself? Can't I give you half my strength and keep half for myself? Okay, Lord, I'll, I'll keep the fifth commandment. I'll, I'll render to Caesar's what is Caesar's. I'll, I'll pay my taxes in March. But can't I do just a few cash jobs on the side? And fine, I won't. I won't murder anyone, but, but what's the harm if I harbor a little hatred in my heart? And fine, I won't sleep with another man's wife, but, but can't I look at her? Can't I just lust after her? What's, what's the harm in that? Okay, Lord, I, I'll stop telling lies, but what's the harm if I, if I gossip just a little bit every now and again? Okay, Lord, I won't, I won't steal, but, but can't I covet a little? Can't I at least dream of a world where everything is mine and where everything goes my way all the time? What's, what's the harm in that? Lord, you're asking too much of me. We sometimes think this way, don't we? Notice, congregation, that the Lord never places the covenant demands upon us in absence of the covenant promises. Elijah comes to the widow and says, give me your last morsel of bread. And the widow is, is reluctant, saying, but this is everything I have. This is, this is all I have left. But then what does God's word bearer say? Do not fear. Don't be afraid, Elijah says. Isn't this precisely how Christ comes to us? Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Verse 14, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. The Lord, you see, never decrees the demand of the covenant apart from the promises of the covenant. Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And why is that? How, how could Jesus say that? My yoke is easy, my burden is light. When he also says, if you love me, you'll do what? You will keep all my commandments. Hardly sounds like a light yoke to me. But he says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. How can he say that? He can say that because we recognize that we can pray as St. As Augustine once prayed in those battles against, against Pelagius. Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. When the word of the Lord comes to us, it demands everything from us. All that we have and all that we are must be devoted and dedicated to all that he is. There is no getting around that. But God reminds us in the gospel of his son that he gives what he commands. Isn't this what we hear every time we, we bring our children forward for baptism? That the demands of the covenant come in light of the promises of the covenant. In light of that promise that we are 
baptized in the name of the Father, whereby God promises to, to adopt us into his own family. And the demands come in light of the promise that that Christ will wash away all our sins and the demands come in light of the promise that we are baptized into the Holy Spirit. What does God say? God promised that he will make his home within us. and He will cause us to be born again through that living and abiding word of God that he will implant that faith in our hearts and engraft us into Christ. It's only in connection with the promises of the covenant that God gives to us that he places the demands of the covenant upon us to live in new obedience to him. Think of how the form of baptism goes on to say that's in light of the promises that we must cling to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in light of the promises that we must trust him and love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's in light of the promises that we must renounce the sinful way of life. It's in light of the promises that we must put to death our old nature and show by our lives that we are not our own, but that we belong to God. These are not things that we do in our own strength. The word of the Lord demands everything of us. We must be willing to give all that we have and all that we are to all that he is. We must keep those words of our Savior always impressed upon our hearts and minds. If anyone would come after me, what then must he do? He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. We are to be like that other widow of whom we read in the Gospel of Luke where we are told that that as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. But he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. And when Jesus saw her, he said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I tell you, this widow has put in more than all the others. For all these people contributed out of their abundance But she, out of her poverty, gave everything she had. On account of this, the electing love of God, this widow of Zarephath is moved by the word of God. The Spirit tells us in verse 15 that she went and did as Elijah said. She not only believed that what the prophet had said, but she also granted his request and gave him everything she had, trusting that the God of Elijah would be her God as well. And so here, congregation, we see something of the irresistibility of God's grace in Jesus Christ, of which we confess in the canons of Dort. And in Article 10 of the third and fourth head of of doctrine, we are reminded that, that God's work of conversion is not only grounded in his doctrine of election, but is also efficaciously carried out. So that when the child of God hears the word of God, he cannot help but believe that word and, and live in light of that word in repentance and faith. Even as this widow has done here. In verse 16, we see that this saving faith brings full salvation. Yes, the word of God demands everything from us, but it also delivers everything to us. She and he and her household 
ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, and neither did the jug of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. As one pastor has put it, when the widow staked her life on God's promise, God did not disappoint her. Her faith was secure in his salvation. For when she received Christ's messenger, she received Christ himself. When the widow staked her life on God's promise, God's promise did not disappoint. Do you believe that this afternoon? That if you will hear the promises of God and and stake your life upon those promises, living by faith and not by sight, God will not disappoint. Recognize that the sins of the world, they come up to us and they... They promise us everything, but they always deliver on nothing. But God's promises do not disappoint. When she received Christ's messenger, she received Christ himself. That's what Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 10. When he said to his disciples, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Whoever receives a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Elijah here is a type. He is a picture of the Christ to come. Christ says the same to us. He is the the great prophet who, who comes to us and says, if you will receive me, if you will receive me and my message, you will receive my reward. Isn't that we confess in Lord's Day 23 of our catechism? That all that Christ has, has been granted and and credited to us. Christ's righteousness, Christ's holiness, Christ's obedience. As if we had never sinned nor been a sinner. All this becomes ours. When we receive this Christ with a believing heart. Whoever receives a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And he will by no means lose his reward. Here in the heart of heathendom on Baal's home turf, the God of heaven is taking care of his prophet and those who have placed their trust in his name. What we read here in verse 16 is reminiscent of those words from Psalm 34, 34 verse 9 where David says, Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him will have no lack Whereas we also find in Psalm 23, we're reminded here that ours is the God who who prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, who who causes our cup to, to run over. That's what God is doing here day after day in the heart of heathendom. God is preparing a table for this widow and Elijah in the land of Sidon, in the land of our enemies. 
This congregation is the promised deliverance proclaimed in God's word. As the heavens declared the anger of God and the skies, the the heat of his wrath in Israel, for this believing widow, every morning was a fresh episode of God's faithfulness to the promise. The word of the Lord has indeed, sadly and tragically, departed from the northern kingdom of Israel on account of her hardness of heart, but here in Sidon, poor widow who was once a slave to Baal has been set free by the liberating power of the word of God. Although Baal had left her empty in the pit of of hopelessness and on the verge of death without food and without drink, the Lord has made her full. He writes, one pastor is a Gentile widow awash in the wideness of God's mercy. Here is grace that moved beyond the boundaries of the covenant people and embraces Baal's most hopeless pawns. And although we do not know her name, this nameless widow joins the likes of, of Rahab from Jericho and Ruth from Moab. She joins the likes of those who, who stand within that wide circle of God's grace of which we sang at the start of our worship service, where we remind ourselves again that our God is indeed the the fount of, of life and grace. The Lord is just His grace white as the ocean, as He fulfills His word. So how can we not give Him our devotion? Here in the faith of this unnamed widow who found everything she needed in the Lord, we hear the call of Isaiah afresh and anew. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why would you look to the idols of the world? Listen diligently to me, says God. And eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food, that rich food of the gospel. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live, says God, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. The word of the Lord has gone beyond the borders of Israel. That word has come to us in all its grace and all its liberating power. It demands everything from us. But it also delivers everything to us. And therein lies our hope and our confidence this afternoon. Amen. Let us come before God in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, again, We come before you recognizing that we, like the widow, are poor and needy. That without your grace, we, like the widow, are on our last leg. We are on the verge of death. That so long as we remained outside of Christ, we were like those rebels from Jeremiah 2, 
forsaking you, the fountain of living waters, and trying to dig for ourselves broken cisterns that could hold no water at all. Father, we thank you that in the midst of a rebellious world such as this, you have called out to us and said, come, come to the waters. And because your grace is irresistible, we have done that very thing. Lord, we know that so long as Christ tarries and so long as we are not yet perfected in glory, we are yet inclined, according to our old nature, to leave the God we love, to to go back to those broken cisterns, to go dumpster diving in, in the false promises and pleasures of the world. Perhaps some of us here have been doing that very thing as of late, dumpster diving in the false pleasures of the world. But Lord, as we see the grace that you once had shown to this poor widow, we pray that this grace would draw us to come to you again. To come to our only fountain of living waters. To incline our ears to you again. To listen diligently to you again and to eat that rich food of the gospel where you remind us that your grace is indeed wide as the ocean. Lord, we hear the call of faith. We hear the the ringing of the law. We know, Lord, that you demand everything from us. And sometimes we're inclined to think you're asking too much of us. But Lord, keep always before us that you not only demand from us, but you deliver everything to us. And so, Father, may we live as a people of the promise. Grant us faith and grace to appropriate your promises increasingly so that we indeed cling to you as our one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But we pray this in Jesus' name and for